0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. Economic indicators.
0: Who knows where this is going to end up. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How you doing there? It is podcast time and uh, John has decided that he's turned into a mountain climber. What's the latest in this? Oh,
2: I'll tell you that story. So the other day, my mate Al rings me all excitedly saying he just saw this wonderful film called Fourteen Peaks. And it's about the guy doing 14 Peaks in the Himalayas and stuff. And he said, Oh, I really, really wanna go to Base Camp. And I went going, absolutely. Yeah, what's, it's what's what's Base Camp? Base camp is base camp of Everest. So it's it's where you where they all congregate before they Come do up. the climb okay. and, and summit. But it's base camp is still 5,400 metres above sea level. That's three miles. Right. So that's the highest, that's higher than any Alpine peak. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So it's like Andes peak.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah, no, it's huge. It's huge. But ironically and coincidentally, I got this message from this lovely guy called James McManus, Who runs this kind of expedition? Oh, no. (laughs) He runs this expedition company called Earth's Edge. They're based there in in Donnybrook. And he contacted me just out of the blue, just to say that he loves the podcast and all that kind of stuff. And he knows that I'm interested in sustainability and all that kind of stuff. And he just wanted to tell me about that he just got accredited his company by this thing called B Corp. Now, you know, the way we've been talking about ESG before? Yep. Environment, society, and governance. So
0: yeah, environment, social and government. Yeah. Social and yeah, governance. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Well, B Corp, and there's an awful lot of greenwashing in that, as we yeah. know. But B Corp was a way of actually measuring that. So it prevents any greenwashing. So he, he's very proud of this, and it's a really good thing. And it's and the whole idea of B Corp is about business as a force for good. So he's telling me about that. What's this got
0: to do with us? Because we're clearly, podcast is a force for evil.
2: <laughs> well, no, we make it a force for good. But I was chatting away to him and he's a great guy. But he invited us me. to trek up to base camp and do a podcast from Basecamp. And I'm on for it. Totally on know, for I'm, it.
0: you know I'm afraid of heights?
2: <laughs> I am. This might be a small problem. <laughs> this
0: is a big, small problem.
2: And it's not to, just a stroll either, like it's to a proper... That, to
0: go to the Himalayas. Go oh, go
2: to the Himalayas. Like, he'll, his company sorts all from that. the Himalayas. Yeah. And... Uh, As
0: Dougal would say, that's mad, Ted. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. And he's pushing did forward... you hear my voice is very high there? Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> if you put me on a stepladder, I panic, okay?
2: <laughs> James, we might have a problem here.
0: <laughs> a podcast from Basecamp. Why did they... You know what I hate? is words that are really, really misleading, like base camp. Uh, what's wrong with that? Base means on the ground. It is still on it's the ground. Five, it's just 000. it's as three miles <laughs> up. <laughs> it's a three mile base.
1: Okay. Anyway,
2: so we're going to do that. Are we? We are absolutely oh, going to That's do so it, but we have All to right. get into training. So I have to give up the fags and lose the bag and get into training. Are you on for it?
0: Kind of. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. As long as we do it very slowly. Oh, it and is slowly, no yeah. Vertiginous drops. That would make I me. Can't, freak I can't out. guarantee anything, but apart from a good time. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. The David McWilliams podcast goes to the Himalayas. Now, speaking of the Himalayas, Nepal, Tibet, all that neck of the woods.
2: Yeah, yeah. Fascinating sure. part.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to talk about China today, right? Ooh. And the reason I want to talk about China is because the last couple of podcasts were like looking at 2022 you know, is anything going to happen that will define this year? Now, it's obviously really a mugs game to think you can predict the future, but it does seem that one of the possibilities Mm. is China loses its luster. And what I mean by that is over the last 30 years, the story of China has been growth and change and economic uplift and all that sort of stuff. Now that seems to be atrophying, falling apart, One area is the economy. It's very clear that China's kind of going through, you know, economies tend to slow down in two ways. One of which is the 2008 thing that crashes overnight, right? Everything collapses and it's like, whoa, what's happening? The other one is this kind of slow grinding, usually property-led slowdown. And it seems to me that China's going through this slow grinding slowdown. Because what's happening is the overinvestment in property over the last 10 years mm. has now reached the buffers. And you're seeing default after default, and the government trying to fill cracks all over the place. But I think one thing will be quite interesting this idea of you know, the Chinese growth miracle of growing by six, seven, 8% per year yeah. I think that's completely over. I think it'll grow by what, one or 2% maximum per year. Right. And that'll have profound implications. But the other thing, is the investigations into COVID, (gasps) into the origin of COVID. Where does it come from? Okay, we're not talking about COVID. As We're talking about where did the disease originate from. Okay, okay. And if the theory that the disease originated from bats but jumped into humans through the supply chain, the food supply chain, which is the one we're going with now, imagine that is overturned and the idea is came from a laugh what would that do in Wuhan yeah what would that do to the brand of china what would do to the image of china what would that do to the perceptions of the motivations of china and last night i stayed up all night reading a new book called viral the search for the origin of covid-19 by alina chan and matt ridley fascinating Sleuth, sort of detective idea. Right, brilliant. Trying to pick up where did it come from? We have Matt on the line. He's over in the UK. I think you'll find this fascinating. It's all about viral, the search for the origin of COVID 19. Matt Ridley is a man who writes exquisitely and thinks exquisitely, a man who I have read for many, many years. His stuff on innovation, where ideas come from, how the economy grows how old ideas are elbowed out by new ideas, how the Shumterian gales of creative destruction, all that good stuff that you hear in the podcast. Matt, how are you doing? Good to have you. Very well. Thank you for that very kind remark, David. Well, as you know, Matt, compliments get you everywhere. Flattery gets you everywhere in this game. But Matt, (laughs) I did stay up most of the night reading Viral. It's a fantastic, fantastic idea of the search for the origins of COVID.
3: I'm going to correct you there. I'm going to correct you. You've twice said origins. We actually say origin. Okay. We think there was only one origin. It's quite, it's, it's an,
0: okay. just an interesting little point there. No, it's a big point, it's a big point. So Matt, let me tell me, what is the thesis of the book? We're going to do a who, what, why, when, you know, detective sleuth bit here. What's the thesis?
3: Well, the thesis of the book is that we need to know where this virus came from that there are two strong possibilities and we can rule out most of the others. And those are that it came through the wildlife trade through the market in Wuhan, or that it came through the laboratory in Wuhan, the leading laboratory in the world for studying SARS-like coronaviruses, and that there was some kind of accident in that laboratory that enabled researchers to get infected. We can't definitively decide between those two hypotheses based on the information we've been able to gather, but the what of the book is to take the reader by the hand and guide them down a, a labyrinth of inquiries as to try and answer this question. It's the process of, of of trying to answer the question that I think we found fascinating and we hope the reader finds fascinating. Well
0: well I found I found it really fascinating. We will get we'll get to the, the conclusion in time, but what I found brilliant was this idea that you were actually taking me by the hand and saying like let's start at the beginning. So can I start where you start, which is the first outbreak of something that ended up being COVID-19 in a mine in rural China in 2012, I think it was. Tell me the story.
3: Yes. it's. It, we don't know that it was COVID-19 or even necessarily very close to it. But what we know is that uh, six people fell ill after shoveling bat guano in a disused mine shaft, a copper mine in Mojian County in southern southwestern China in Yunnan. And uh, over the next few months these people were desperately ill in hospital in Kunming the capital of Yunnan and three of them died, three of them didn't. The doctors treating them included all of the leading virologists in China actually, all of whom eventually concluded that this was a bat-borne SARS-like virus. Now, if this was true, it was the first time we'd been able to find a SARS-like virus infecting human beings directly from bats, as opposed to the first SARS epidemic, which was in 2003, which came through uh, an intermediate animal called the palm civet, mainly. So there was huge interest in this. And in particular, the recommendation was for virologists to go and study the bats in that mine shaft and see what viruses they were carrying. And the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the leading laboratory for working on this, even though Wuhan is nearly 2,000 kilometers away. And the scientists from there went to this mine shaft on at least seven occasions between 2012 and 2015. And they came back with a number of viruses that the bats were carrying, which were like SARS, but not very like SARS. And they were sort of new to science. And when the the COVID-19 outbreak started at the end of 2019, it turned out that one of these viruses, which was by then in the freezer of the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, was the closest relative of SARS-CoV-2, the cause of COVID-19, in existence. It was 96.2%. It's not the same virus. You know, 96% is still a big enough difference for us to be able to say, well, this isn't the virus that caused the pandemic. But it does suggest that that site in southwestern Yunnan may be a very important place to try and understand where this virus came from. The bats in there must have been carrying bat viruses pretty similar to SARS-CoV-2. And the only people we know of who travelled directly from that mineshaft to Wuhan were scientists who did so on numerous occasions over the last few years.
0: So that story is distinct from the story that the world has kind of more or less accepted, or at least up until a while ago accepted, that in some way the bat virus got into these small animals who were then subsequently slaughtered in the markets in Wuhan. And this is how the virus jumped into humans. Explain that Story to me. And then let's go and do a little bit of detective work.
3: Yeah, because in the case of SARS in 2003, that's exactly what happened. Um, The the first people to catch SARS were all food handlers, people working in markets or chefs or that kind of thing. And so there was a a rapid investigation and they found the virus in animals in the market, in particular, a thing called the palm civet, which is a small animal used in a particularly high prestige dish eaten in southern China and the palm civets were infected with a 99 plus percent similar virus to the one that people were catching. So the expectation was that this would prove to be the same, that there's a big seafood market in Wuhan. It was the site of a lot of the early cases. Many of the early cases had contact with that market, though not all. And so the assumption was that some animal in that market had been infected. Now, All the animals that were tested from that market proved not to be infected. And over the following months, the Chinese authorities tested 80,000 animals farmed wild in markets in the trade generally from all over China. Mm -hmm. And they still never found a single one carrying the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We haven't found this virus in any animal from before the before it's infected human beings. I mean, obviously, you can find it in animals now because, because cats, cats, everywhere. Are pick, cats are picking it up from us and mink and things like that. But, but before the pandemic, there's still no evidence. So the trail went cold on the market hypothesis. It was revived briefly in early 2020 by a paper suggesting that a similar virus was in pangolins. And it's true that Two out of a bunch of 100 smuggled pangolins that had been intercepted by the Chinese customs in March 2019 were carrying a virus very like some of the bat viruses that are closely related to this. But it wasn't SARS-CoV-2. It was still quite a distance. And those pangolin papers were pretty well discredited because they were implying that this was a widespread problem. In fact, it was only two animals at that stage. A third was later found to have it. So the trail went really cold in terms of finding infected animals in the food chain or a pattern of cases in the early cases that were people who were handling food uh, of some kind. And therefore, the theory that this came from the food chain has not grown stronger and has rather grown weaker over the last 2 years
0: it can't yet be ruled out however as we argue in the book again from my reading it last night it was you know you're you're very very careful not to go into the idea that all this is wrong this transport via the the, the food chain is wrong and this clearly is a lab leak but i i want to go on to the the idea of the lab leak the significance if it was a lab leak and why it has been so discredited from the very, very top for so long. So, let's take me through the lab leak theory. Yeah. Well, um, lab leaks
3: happen. Viruses do escape from laboratories, they infect uh, research workers. It's happened with smallpox, with anthrax, with a number of other pathogens over the years in many different parts of the world. It happened with SARS four times at least, twice in Beijing, once in Taiwan, and once in Singapore, when SARS was no longer circulating in the community but was being studied in labs. And on three of those occasions, nobody knows how it happened. So if you have one of these highly infectious viruses in a lab and you study it, then there's a good chance that somebody will catch it, without necessarily knowing how they get infected. In this case, it is interesting that the leading laboratory in the world by a mile for studying SARS-like viruses in bats, which is what this is, is in the city of Wuhan. It's not in Salisbury or um, Shanghai or or somewhere else. It's in Wuhan. Uh, It's called the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's the only lab in China with a level four lab, which is the highest security lab, which only opened very recently. But most of its research on SARS-like viruses in bats was done at levels two and three. And at level two, what they were doing was infecting human cells with viruses from bats and recombining the genes of different bat viruses so as to test out how dangerous they were. And they did this with thousands of viruses uh, altogether. And at level three, which is a more secure lab, they were infecting humanized mice, that is to say mice with human genes. Now, what the effect of these experiments was, was first of all, in some cases, to produce much more dangerous viruses. We know that they published uh, up to 10,000 times increases in infectivity and up to three times increases in virulence in terms of uh, Uh killing mice, for example. But the other thing that we know happened here is that the viruses from bats were being put into human cells or humanized mice. And that was effectively giving them evolutionary training in the infection of human cells. That would have led to some adaptation of these viruses to being quite good at infecting human beings Mm -hmm. if and when they got the opportunity. And what my co-author Uh, who I haven't mentioned yet, who's the the real genius behind this book, a a wonderful young scientist called Alina Chan at Harvard and MIT. What she spotted very early on, and that's how I first came across her, uh, was that this virus was surprisingly well adapted to infecting human beings from the very start. There was no phase during which it fumbled around saying, I really don't know how to infect this creature, but I'll have a go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is what SARS did, actually, in its early months. It seemed to be right out of the bat quite well infected and not needing to indulge in very rapid mutation to be able to infect human beings. Obviously, later on, it indulged in a lot of mutation to get around. Uh, the various the vaccines and everything. And
0: yeah, yeah. But, but but uh, So at the beginning, you're saying that something unusual about this virus, of the many unusual characteristics, one was it seemed to have evolved into being particularly good at deploying the human as a host for itself. And most viruses you're saying, as you say, fumble around in this messy trial and error, trying to figure out their way into humans and their way to project from us to other humans. Is that what you're saying?
3: Yeah, exactly that. So, uh, Alina Chan used the the phrase "well adapted" in her original paper on this in May twenty twenty, which is what caught my attention. She got into a lot of trouble for that. A lot of virologists saying, "Oh, what, you can't say it's well adapted to humans. You know, you haven't got enough evidence." But actually, that phrase was used again by the World Health Organization shortly after that, and by others. It's it's actually quite a well accepted point. That the, you know, this was a very transmissible virus in human beings from the start. It's obviously the case. Obviously, the Chinese authorities were denying human-to-human transmission in early January, saying the only way you can catch this virus is from an animal. Already, they were known to be wrong about that. I mean, that was that was a big mistake on their part to make that claim as late as they did. But, you know, it was spreading between human beings right from the start somewhere It's learned how to deal with the the human host. That's the argument. Okay. There are several possible...
0: So so let let me just say, so this is the sort of, this is the nub of the argument, which is that, if I understand you right, viruses are evolutionary phenomena. And it takes a long, long time for a virus to figure out exactly how it's going to survive. But for some reason, this virus seemed to have short-circuited this in some way. And potentially, the reason it short-circuited was that the virus had, from the period, let's say, 2015 to 2020, in the lab in Wuhan, been adapting all the time and been allowed to adapt by various different experimentation in the labs. And labs are messy and things go wrong. Yeah, that's roughly right. I think I would be more
3: cautious about the word taking a long time to adapt. It could happen quite fast. Okay, Um, if a virus generation is so short, you know, hours or days, that evolution can happen quite rapidly in human.
0: Time. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I was, I, was, I was thinking evolution in my head. Darwinian time. Exactly. As in long periods. But you're saying it exactly. can actually happen so very quickly.
3: Actually, there's an interesting point here, which is that some reviewers of our book have been very critical, saying, look, they're reading too much into the fact that there was a 96% similar virus in a mineshaft. 96% is less similar than human beings are to chimpanzees you know, this is a very different creature, which is true. But uh, the difference between us and chimpanzees, which is only 1% or 2%, is 5 or 6 million years. The difference in a virus of 4% is generally thought to be about 40 years at normal rates of evolution. But it could be a lot less at under laboratory um, conditions. Under laboratory conditions where there's rapid evolution. Wow, activity. it's
0: amazing. It is a, it's a, this. I'm saying, John, I was up last night reading it, and you know it takes me a lot to stay up all night reading, okay? <laughs> Matt, I'm t- sorry. To
3: spoil your
2: night.
0: <laughs> no, on the contrary. <laughs> it, it enthused my night. He's
2: tired and cranky today. <laughs> Matt, can I ask you just, uh, I just want to go back. You, you mentioned there a little bit earlier about now the virus is in lots of different animals, and you mentioned mink and all that kind of stuff. What then is the possibility of the virus mutating even further and evolving in those hosts and jumping back? And, and, and I say this having just watched the rise of the planet of the apes there a couple of nights ago.
0: John, I'm telling you, <laughs> we, always, we always come back to first principles. Always back to first principles.
3: <laughs> it's a really good question, John. And uh, actually, we may have just witnessed exactly that happening, a so-called reverse zoonosis where we give it to an animal, then an animal gives it back to us later. And that's uh, one of the hypotheses about where Omicron came from. Omicron is a very unusual variant in that it's very distinct from the other variants from Delta and Alpha and all the other variants we've had. But it's descended from a version of SARS-CoV-2 that was in human beings quite a long time ago in sort of the first half of 2020. So where's it been hiding? between the middle of 2020 and it reappearing in uh, November 2021 20, in South Africa. The leading answer is that it's been hiding in immunocompromised individuals in Southern Africa. In other words, that, that that somebody's had a very, very long-term infection with this virus. Their immune system isn't can't clear the virus, and so the virus has had a chance to mutate in that person. But a paper's just come out recently from a Chinese group which looks at the mutations in Omicron and says actually these are mutations that you'd expect to happen if the virus was in a mouse. Not a rat, not a cat, not a dog, not a deer, not a cow. You know, they, they, yeah, the, they go the through all they, the various they go through all the other possibilities. And the one that stands out like a sore thumb in terms of the pattern of mutations that have happened in Omicron. Uh, somewhere in the last year and a half, looks like it it's a mouse adapted version. Now, this could be because someone, not necessarily in Africa, maybe somewhere else, but probably Africa because that's where it first cropped up, infected a mouse in their house by mistake. The virus then spent a year infecting other mice in the community and eventually someone got bitten by a mouse again a year and a half later. That's one possibility. The other possibility, of course, is that one of the most commonly used animals in experimental labs is the mouse, and that maybe there's been experiments going on with mice in labs with SARS-CoV-2, which there have. There have been lots of experiments going on like that. And one of these has resulted in an infected strain of mice that has eventually given it back to human beings. At the moment, we can't distinguish between those two possibilities, or indeed, we can't rule out the immunocompromised individual yet. You know, I'm not here to say that, that, that Omicron came out of a lab. I, I, I don't think there's anything like good enough evidence to say that yet. But it, it does look like this virus has bounced into another species and bounced back. And, of course, it might do that again. So
0: let's let's go back to our detective work, OK? Because what's very, very clear for me, and I, I read the book, and then I, I was skimming reviews this morning, and, and I always you know the RAF had this expression that uh, you only take the flack this is coming from my great uncle who was in the RAF you only take the flack when you're over the target and usually exactly. when i see a book that is particularly from the, the the insiders which is lambasted by those who own the territory i think of that taking the flack over the target idea come back to let's come back to the detective work tell me where you go now so we've we've looked at the food chain, we've looked at the lab, we know the general reaction was to keep quiet about anything that was potentially from a lab. Joe Biden said he wanted to get the truth of all this. Where, where are we now at the origin of COVID? Where is the world accepted origin of COVID now, and where might it go, in your opinion? For
3: well, most of 2020, the accepted view was that it couldn't have come from a laboratory and that that was a conspiracy theory, in quotes. And this was partly uh, down to two papers that appeared very early on in the pandemic uh, saying we can rule out any lab-based origin. The trouble is those two papers came from people who uh, either had close conflicts of interest because they were close collaborators of the lab in question in Wuhan, or they used rather weak arguments that have since been shown to be not very strong. But the media and much of the establishment took those as red. And to start with, I did too. I I went around telling people, no, you can rule out a lab. Scientists have had a look and they've ruled it out. And then in the spring of 2020, things started to happen like the market got exonerated. None of the animals in it tested positive. Even the Chinese authorities said they thought the market was a super spreader event, not an origin event and more details emerged of what had been going on in the lab including the connection with the mine shaft in 2012 which had been very carefully obscured in one of the first announcements of the genome of this closely related virus all of which began to cause people like me to revisit the question and and have a look have a closer look at what was going on in the lab and a series of articles appeared mostly not in the mainstream media which was still Censoring any discussion of the lab as a possible site of origin. Uh, you know, literally in the case of Facebook, you know, they weren't allowing any discussion of it. And in the case of, you know, the New York Times and others, they were basically saying, no, we don't do articles on that. And my co-author and I struggled to get an article into the Wall Street Journal and another into the Daily Telegraph, saying we do need to take this hypothesis seriously. We don't think it's necessarily the answer, but it, it needs to be investigated. Even then. In May of 2021, something changed. There was a a significant sea change in the way the media handled this story. And everybody agreed that the lab based origin needed to be taken seriously now, from now on. This was partly because the World Health Organization's investigation had turned into a bit of a farce in which they'd ended up endorsing a bizarre theory that it had got to Wuhan on frozen food, which doesn't really make sense, because why wouldn't it have infected people somewhere along the chain of frozen food, that kind of thing. And it was partly because a letter appeared in Science, signed by uh, a number of scientists, saying, although we don't necessarily think it came from a lab, that hypothesis does need to be taken seriously, and a proper investigation needs to happen, which is only reasonable, we think. Now, in theory, that's where we still sit, because the Biden administration then commissioned the intelligence community, all the different agencies in the US, to take a look at this and come back with their view. Only one came back with a moderately strong view, and that said, yes, we think it did come out of a lab. We gather that was the FBI, but we don't know for sure. The other agencies mostly said we don't know, but uh, three of them said we think it probably didn't come out of a lab. So that was a sort of neither one thing nor the other. But there was then, this last autumn, there was some pushback from the scientific establishment in particular to try and get back to the point where they'd been in early 2020, where they could rule this out. And we found that very strongly. We found that when we published our book in November, quite a lot of mainstream liberal media agreed to cover it or have a discussion or invite us on and then cancelled us. And we asked why. Uh, And they said, oh, our medical team has been talking to scientists and they say it can be ruled out. What? What can be ruled out? The lab leak. Well, we're not arguing for a lab leak. We're arguing that the lab leak is a strong possibility and that it needs debating. So you know, we found ourselves getting cancelled by mainstream media again. So there's been a determined pushback. There's a lot of people in the scientific establishment who are keen not to
0: look into this question. Which is why do you think I mean, it's interesting you're, you're saying this many, many years ago. A very respected, you're, you know, there's an Irish podcast, very, very respected British judge called Judge Denham, who was talking about the Guilford 4 stitch up. And he used this extraordinary word about the appalling vista. And what he was saying is it would be an appalling vista if it was the case that the police in Birmingham framed the police in Guildford, sorry frame these four irish guys. Yeah. And he said to himself, we can't countenance this vista, and therefore as a consequence we must go with the theory that they were guilty. Now this is like Denham who was a very very clever man and one of that I think he was what's it, the leading of the roles or whatever Most, whatever, of the roles, yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever Yeah, yeah, whatever whatever the expression yeah. is in England, right? Yeah. But it was a for for me as an irish kid at the time, young kid, I thought, wow, this is interesting because what he's saying is although there is a chance that these guys are innocent. We can't reopen this case because to reopen this case would be such an appalling vista and such an indictment on our system. Are we talking about something kind of similar here?
3: I think we are. I think that exactly that sort of, I think the phrase is motivated reasoning uh, is happening here. As you say, the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six were shocking miscarriages of justice. And exactly that argument was made. Yes, but we can't it it would be so damaging to the image of British justice to admit that we got this badly wrong, that we mustn't go down that road. And what we're hearing today is it might be so damaging to the image of science in general, and virology in particular, that we can't go down the road of even speculating about the possibility that this started in a laboratory. The work that was being done in Wuhan, in collaboration with American other labs in particular, was designed to prevent the next pandemic. Okay, the jo- the, They were saying, if you give us a lot of money to go out into the wild and sample bats and study their viruses in the lab and manipulate them and do experiments on them, we will come back and tell you where the threat is likely to come from, and we will be ready with a vaccine or a preventative uh, uh, treatment uh, when the next pandemic starts.
0: At the very least, they
3: failed in that
0: mission. Okay. (laughs) So can I just stop just one thing So The worst they may have caused it. I I want to come back to this. So what you're saying, there's nothing about, because initially in, in, in the nether regions, there was that this is biological warfare and this was malignant Chinese. So what you're saying is in Wuhan, all the motivation was positive in the sense that this was scientists trying to figure out the next vaccine because this SARS will mutate. It's going to come from somewhere. So the... Right. motivation of the scientists was all positive, beneficial, benign.
3: Absolutely. Okay, And good. Uh, we 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 strongly believe that. I mean, you you can make a case that the People's Liberation Army was involved in some of this research. There were people with biological warfare interests looking at this, but we think it's highly unlikely that this is a bioweapon when, that's gone
0: wrong. So this is a benign um, mistake, you're thinking?
3: This is a benign mistake, exactly. This is scientists saying, if you give us money to study these viruses, we think we can help you prevent the next pandemic. Um, and they actually talk about, you know, before the pandemic begins, that there is a lot of talk about the next step beyond these experiments we're doing now is to develop a pan-coronavirus vaccine that will enable us to, to get ready to do it. And in 2018, there's an application to DARPA, the American Defense Research Agency, from the EcoHealth Alliance, which is an American foundation that works closely with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, to say, give us $14 million and we will go and continue these experiments. And one of the things we'll do is develop a spray that we can spray into bat caves to immunize them against their own viruses, which will reduce the threat to, for example, soldiers who are fighting wars in regions with these viruses in them. Uh, and we'll also develop an app that a soldier can have on his phone saying, watch it, you're close to a bat cave with uh, infectious viruses in it.
0: These are pretty wacky ideas, they are. frankly. But, <laughs> but they're brings not... to mind mal- the American expression, batshit crazy, actually. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, let's conclude here, Matt. I want to ask you two things. One is, what do you think the progression of this virus will have? Because many listeners... We'd be thinking, OK, well, if this is a, a virus that's mutating and it might be going back and forth from, from, from animal and vir- it's, it's trying to figure out various viruses, what's the next iteration? Like, Is it here to stay, number one? And then number two is the appalling vista question, which is, if it is the case that it comes from a lab and that becomes the central narrative, what are the implications of this? Right. Um,
3: f- in answer to the first question... I think the virus is here to stay. I don't think we can stop it bouncing around the human population and bouncing backwards and forwards from animals, as I've said. Uh, I think it will become endemic. There are four coronaviruses that infect human beings with symptoms of the common cold. Uh, There are about 200 kinds of viruses that cause common colds, rhinoviruses, adenoviruses, and coronaviruses. Those four coronaviruses probably began with nasty pandemics, and then settle down to being milder versions. And I argue, not everybody agrees with me on this, but based on the work of various scientists, uh, that respiratory viruses spread by coughs and sneezes do tend to evolve, evolve to being mild because the milder strains get spread better because you still go to a party with them and you don't stay at home. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Um, that's not true, by the way, of insect-borne viruses or anything like that, but it is true of, of respiratory viruses. So I think that's the fate we're heading for. And frankly, I think Omicron is halfway there. I think, you know, this is a relatively mild version of the virus that will enable us to get back to something like normal life this year. That said, we've now got tools in the shape of vaccines and antiviral treatments that we've never had before for respiratory viruses. And it'll be interesting to see whether we can, you know, get rid of a new version of the common cold. Or even get rid of all versions of the common cold um, uh, as a result of the research that's happened during this pandemic. But I'll leave that as a speculative aside. Back to your question what are the implications if we do find uh, effectively a smoking gun that, uh, you know, if a whistleblower comes forward and says, yes, there was an accident on the 15th of October 2019 and somebody got infected, he went to hospital, we hushed it up, blah, blah, blah. And his name was X and he tested. This is the patient there's no, zero idea. There's, there's, there's no doubt about it, as it were. If if that were to happen, then in my view, we need to think of it more like an airline crash in terms of blame. So when an airliner crashes, the, the world has agreed that what happens is The information in the black box is shared. Everybody learns what they can from it. Everybody redesigns their procedures or their aircraft or whatever so that we all benefit. It's worked incredibly well. We've enormously reduced airline fatalities over decades. So I think we need to get away from the thought that we immediately rush to blame China, punish China or anything like that. I think we can have a very robust conversation with them about not being more open and transparent in an attempt to solve this problem. Um, if that's the case. But what we then need to do is look at all the research that's going on in virology labs around the world and say, some of these experiments probably are not sensible. We already had a bit of a conversation like this five years ago. It's called the gain of function debate. It was about flu, but it was along similar lines. Are you sure it's wise to be making avian flu infect mammals, you know, so it knows how to infect human beings more easily? This was a perfectly good debate. It needs to be had again. And Some kind of self-restraint on behalf of scientists as to what experiments they do. So it's not to rule out, you know, useful research that can cure diseases, but nor to to go looking for a gas leak with a lighted match, uh, as it were, is, I think, what needs to come out of this.
0: Matt? Fascinating stuff. Really fascinating. I can recommend to the listeners. This was, it was a great read. It, uh, not only, it enhanced the Friday night in the McWilliams abode. And it was, it was great. So it's, it's the book is called Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. That was Matt Ridley. Matt wrote it together with Alina Chan. You've heard it there. It was great stuff. Matt, thank you very much indeed. I really enjoyed the conversation, David. And see you in Kilkenny next year. Absolutely. Take care, Matt.
3: Cheers, Matt.
1: Bye. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: That was fascinating stuff. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. And the, the whole thing of the Batcave. Batcave. Bat, bat shit crazy. T- bat shit crazy from the Batcave. Bruce Wayne.
0: That's, who's, who's Bruce Wayne? He's Batman. Oh, sorry, I don't <laughs> get these cultural references. Okay, I thought it was a bloke.
2: But <laughs> well, I'll tell you what is interesting, though. You know the way he was talking there about the analogy with the, with flight and, and plane, yeah, and plane and the crashes? And, and... the and But, you know, it's actually taking that approach to, you know, the, the genuine sharing of information globally.
0: But, of course, politics gets in the way. Well, we see this in COVID. I mean, every country has its own response to COVID mm. because every country thinks they're better. And what I think may be quite interesting, but maybe ultimately quite malign, has been the way in which every newspaper produces a graph of how Ireland's doing, how Norway's yeah, yeah, doing, yeah. how Britain's doing, how America's doing. And it's kind of, nah, 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 nah. We're doing better <laughs> than you. So I think, well, I think we're a long way away, but I think the fascinating part of this is if he is right, that there has been a massive cover-up from Wuhan mm-hmm. to China to everybody involved thinking and then the scientists saying well look we don't want our good work to unravel here and i think that is the you know the judge denning i really come back to the guilford four and the Burning six you know when i was a kid i remember reading this and the idea that there is an appalling vista which is the words he used yeah that even if there's a tiny risk that these guys are innocent we can't Open that particular door. Why? Because the implication for British justice will be so profoundly damaging mm. that we're not going to do it. And Maybe this is another example that the implication for the world, if it is a lab leak, is so profoundly damaging, not just to science, to scientific inquiry, but also to geopolitics and relations with China, yeah. that we'll suppress it worth thinking about
2: just before you go i just want to take this opportunity to thank you all so much genuinely for your generosity in giving us a little bit of your time each week while we have a bit of crack and talk about all sorts of good stuff and i especially want to thank all our patreons who make all this possible and if you want to join us on patreon there's loads of extras not only ad-free episodes, but Macker has also put together two economics courses complete with reading lists, notes, and all sorts of good stuff. So join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David Williams. Thanks again. Chat to you soon.